It's so beautiful and you can feel the temperature change immediately in the canyon. Water just gushing from this, from this hole in the rock. And as we got closer, I could feel this, this, this longing to, to get more closer, to touch the water and feel that, that coolness of it. And I felt this, it was so alive and just was looking at it in awe and wondering, where is all this water coming from? And how long has this water been here? And how long has it been going on? And I was just astounded by it. Yates ran a rigs in a shea, chisha denen nishle, dog, lizathlana, bashachin, bashihi a dashache, do torajini a dashinele. This is Sarana Riggs. The story she's telling is of her first time visiting Vassie's Paradise four years ago. It's below mile marker 30 on the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon National Park. The whole time I felt this strong presence of somebody being there, a family member, and it was time to go and I didn't want to go. It made me think of when I used to visit my grandparents and I would be with them for either weeks or vacation and it was time to leave them after being there for so long and this sadness came over me because I would, I would be worried about them and if they were going to be okay. So I was looking at the water and I felt the same emotion. Is this water going to be fine? Is this water going to be okay? And I'm sorry, I'm leaving you. You're going to be by yourself again. And I said, I'll be back someday. Don't worry, I'll be back, you'll be fine. This is Parks, a show on the creation of the national parks in the United States, retold alongside Indigenous people. I'm Mary Mathis, and I'll be your host for this episode about the Grand Canyon, where we'll hear from three Native women on their knowledge of the canyon, their work to protect it today, and what they hope for its future. This podcast is coming to you from the traditional homelands of the Tewa people, along with the traditional homelands of the Coast Salish people. We also want to acknowledge that many other tribes and Pueblo people have claims and deep connections pre- and post-colonization to this land. And just a warning for listeners, this episode contains information and details about sexual harassment. Episode 2, The Grand Canyon. Serana Riggs wanted to keep her promise to the water. I'm with the Grand Canyon Trust, and my title is the Grand Canyon Program Manager. About a decade ago, a developer named R. Lamar Whitmer was trying to build a massive tourist attraction called the Escalade Project on 420 acres of Navajo land on the eastern side of the Grand Canyon. This is technically not national park land, but it's north of where the Little Colorado and the Colorado River meet, called the Confluence, a spot considered sacred to many tribes in the area. The development would include a mega resort, an IMAX theater, parking lots, restaurants, a helicopter pad for air tours, shops, and a tramway carrying 10,000 people into the canyon daily. And this, to me, it just seemed impossible. You have so much debris from the canyon walls. You have an ecosystem that's just set perfectly because you have 
the cold water from the Colorado River and you have warmer water from the Little Colorado River. And then the life that lived there was in a symbiotic balance. And you had fish that were endangered that lived there. You have plants that are there. You have our own cultural identities there. You have prayer places that are there. There's an ancient trail system there. I cannot imagine 10,000 people being in that small space day after day and the noise from the tram that would go continuously. And not only that, the lights that would be situated throughout all of the night. If you have night birds, you have bats, you have all of that that would be impacted by light pollution. So in 2012, a cultural and environmental conservation group called Save the Confluence approached Serana seeking her help to advocate against the Escalade project. Their work eventually helped halt the project, at least for now. But it wasn't just Serana fighting this thing. It was with the voices of those who lived in that area, on the rim, near Grand Canyon. It was the families that were being impacted. It was uh, landowners, it was ranchers. It was two communities that had ties to that area. For Serana and many others, the Grand Canyon, known as Wikatara to the Havasupai, isn't a tourist destination. It's a place of prayer and a place of origin for many, many tribes, like Hopi, Zuni, Havasupai, Walapai, Yavapai Apache, San Juan Southern Paiute, Kaibab Paiute, Las Vegas Paiute, Shivwitz Paiute, and her own Navajo tribe. You have Havasupai who live in the canyon and who have ancestral homes on the South Rim and beyond that. It's ingrained in us to, to always call it home. Navajo families still take their sheep down to the water. We still pray at shrines. We still make offerings to certain places down there. We collect plants that are unique to the area, minerals and other things. Water is different in all places and uh, we still have that connection of praying to those water sources. The water is life and it's really important. And we continue to fight and maintain our personal and cultural identities. So our future generations will always acknowledge that this place is, is where they return back to. While Serana wants the Grand Canyon region to be this place for people to call home, she says the tribes need to have a voice in making decisions about the land. When there's proposals and there's ideas and there's policy that's going being put into place, we all feel, we as indigenous people feel like we're the last ones to be to be consulted on the matter. Where was the consultation before when this idea was proposed, this when the idea was created, where were we at in that conversation? We were in afterthought and we should have been there in the beginning. And that's how it's always been ever since the beginning of you know colonization. Let's go back in time, long before anyone thought about putting a helicopter pad or a shopping mall in the Grand Canyon. My name is Ophelia Wadahamaji Corliss, and I am a member of the Havasupai tribe of the Havasupai Reservation in Arizona. Pre-colonization, Havasupai farmed an area of land in the Havasu Canyon, now known as the Supai Village, to grow corn, squash, figs, pomegranates, and beans in the spring and summer. And in fall and winter, they migrated onto the Coconino Plateau to an area now known as the South Rim of the Grand Canyon to hunt and gather. If you ask me what my favorite fruit is, it's absolutely figs. 
fresh figs that I pick from the tree and I eat the whole thing, skin and all. Everybody, I eat the whole thing. (laughs) It is so good. The tribe also created the Havasubai Garden so they could farm there. Today, outsiders visiting what's now known as the Grand Canyon National Park know this place as Indian Garden. Building the national park made the garden a tourist attraction rather than a home for the Havasupai. The total amount of land that is documented that we used to live on was 2,257,728 acres of land that is comprised of our aboriginal territory. In 1880, President Rutherford B. Hayes established the Havasupai Reservation, And in 1882, President Chester Arthur reduced the already limited reservation to 518 acres. The Havasupai previously traveled almost all of what is now Coconino County in Arizona, over 18,000 square miles of land. The 518-acre reservation is still about 75 miles as the crow flies away from Grand Canyon National Park. So because the Supai had lived where the established reservation is, but that's only where we spent spring and summer. For fall and winter, the other part where we spent our time, that was pretty much the south rim of the Grand Canyon National Park. In 1898, forest supervisor W.P. Herman was angry that the Havasupai were hunting deer and antelope off their reservation and on the newly established forest reserve, which they'd been hunting on for generations. So Herman instituted a ban that no Native person could leave their appointed reservation. This ban wasn't successful, and the Havasupai continued to hunt and gather off of the reservation. There are multiple documentations of settlers writing Native people as savages, beasts, and uncivilized people. Those stereotypes followed into the 21st century in media, movies, and educational resources like high school textbooks. This isn't new information, but it's necessary to clarify that settlers' goal in building across the West was to colonize more and more land and force their ideologies upon citizens. If they could control people, they could have power. When indigenous people refused to be controlled, colonizers fought back harder with harsher removal strategies throughout ancestral tribal land. Through deceit and manipulation, the Park Service started giving false promises to Supais, getting them to move out of their homes within the National Park area. The Santa Fe Railway and the Fred Harvey Company made it out there before it was a national park. And so when they arrived, they encountered Supais, and Supais started working for them. That's where Supai Camp is. That's what the Santa Fe Railway established, even though we already had been living there. No one's even aware that it's Havasupai land. And Supais had been living up on the rim, sharing the crops that they would make down in Indian Garden. And our last relative who lived and farmed there, Billy Burrow, he was beat up, tied up, and put on a mule and forcefully taken out of so-called Indian Garden where he was so brokenhearted, how could anybody be so cruel to make him homeless and do this to someone whose family has lived there for as long as Supais could remember? He died that same year the park was established. That was 1919. Essentially, the Park Service killed him. 
1935, while the Havasupai people were away from Supai camp, the Park Service burnt down Havasupai homes and replaced them with cabins they said were, quote, up to code. They claimed they were going to build 36 homes, a school, and several other structures, and instead finished only six homes. They ransacked the camp twice more in the next five years, and eventually forced all who weren't working for the Park Service off the national park land. In 1976, the Park Service gave a final eviction notice to the Havasupai. I hope listeners realize that the intergenerational trauma capital gain has been a really slow moving machine for Native people all across so-called America learning how to cope with a monetary system, uh, learning how to cope with white paper, learning how to cope with property, learning how to cope with bills, learning how to cope with not being able to live off the land or farm certain places or be able to get water from certain springs. It has been the largest hardship of of our entire lives, the adjustment to the dominant society's way of life. And being Supai, the reservation, once again, is not located in the national park, but it is the most isolated tribe in the lower 48 states. The Havasupai were surrounded with no rights. Their land forcefully turned into a tourist attraction and our burial grounds turned into a campground for strangers of the land. Through the 1975 Grand Canyon Enlargement Act and with the support of the Park Service, the Havasupai were able to reclaim 185,000 acres of their original land back. It was the resilience of the Havasupai that they claim land in what we call the Grand Canyon National Park and the greater Grand Canyon region today. Despite the gains the Havasupai made in reclaiming some of their ancestral lands, there are new attacks on this land, from overuse of the Colorado River to uranium mining that brings severe environmental and health risks to the region. Currently, environmental groups like the Grand Canyon Trust and Save the Confluence are fighting against hydroelectric dam proposals that would be created on sacred ground within the canyon. Nikki Cooley, a Navajo woman who has spent much of her life around the canyon, explains why developments like hydroelectric dams or the Escalade project are so problematic. They're trying to enforce the Western colonial framework of more is better. Money is gold. The bottom line is money. But yet for us Native people, Indigenous people, Navajo people, we don't think that way. Most of us don't think that way, I should say, because some of us do, you know, the ones that fallen into that trap. We have a very innate, intimate relationship with the earth and we feel its pain. Uh, and we are the humans, we're called the five-fingered beings. We were put on this earth to be stewards, to take care of the earth and all the relatives. And if we can't do that, then we, the monster has slayed us. So we've gone to the dark side and um, our souls will be unbalanced. 
Preserving the land and keeping this balance is a generational practice for Nikki. It's influenced her life's work. I introduced myself to you as a Navajo woman, which is the proper way to pay our respects to not just Navajo people, but everyone, um, including the holy people who are, we say, are always listening. So I'm of the Towering House clan, which is my mother's clan, born for my father's mother's clan, which is the Reed people clan. And then we recognize our grandfather's matriarchs. So my paternal grandfather is from the Many Goats clan. And then my maternal grandfather is from the Water That Flows Together clan. And so this is how I always identify myself. I grew up on the Navajo Diné Reservation. I grew up without running water and electricity. So I always like to tell that story because it shows the true value of how I grew up to where I am now. I currently work in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. I have two beautiful children and I'm married to an amazing man who works at the hospital. And I do climate change, adaptation, planning, mitigation planning work with tribes across the country. Nikki was the first Native American person to be a board member and vice president of the Grand Canyon River Guides Association and second Native American woman to be on the board of the Grand Canyon Association now known as the Grand Canyon Conservancy. It started off when I became a commercial river guide, where I became probably the most active Native American indigenous voice um, speaking on behalf of not only commercial river guides, but also on behalf of the water that everybody wants to get access to. So I always spoke out on behalf of the waters, Mother Earth and Father Sky, and also tried to educate a lot of commercial river guides and community members and private boaters, actually, on why it's important that we use our voice to protect a resource that we all enjoy and love so much. Nikki's work across the Grand Canyon is rooted in what she learned throughout childhood. Growing up, Nikki was enrolled in a boarding school in Shanto, Arizona, and she didn't receive education on issues like land theft or the history of the Grand Canyon in school. She knew the land around the Grand Canyon was considered sacred, from her bilingual classes and her grandfather, who eventually passed from cancer caused by uranium mining. He would tell her stories about the land. And he would tell me that that area was very important to the Navajo people because a lot of them... The community members around the Cameron, Bodaway Gap area hid in the canyon to get away from the U.S. government army who was hunting them down to try and round them up to go to Fort Sumner, basically a concentration camp, before we were to be moved to Oklahoma Indian Territory. So those are the stories that I heard and also that the significance of the river was similar to kind of like the way the blood flows through our body. You know, there's all these different tributaries. They, they feed into other canyons or they feed into the big waters. Nikki kept learning about Navajo culture throughout college. And during that time, she was asked by a friend if she wanted to join a river trip. She went and instantly felt at home on the water. She became a commercial river guide in the canyon. Some of her clients would ask her about indigenous identity. That's when she started actively trying to educate groups on Native life and history in the park. Doing this set her apart from the non-Native river guides who cycled through seasonal jobs in the park 
and usually had no knowledge about Native ties to the canyon. Nikki was excelling in her job and teaching clients about Indigenous history. But there were dark moments in river guiding that showed disrespect for the land and people who occupy it. Nikki wasn't told that a job requirement would be bathing in front of her co-workers. And while she was trying to do her job, she encountered a lot of inappropriate nudity without her consent from other river guides who thought it was funny and who stared at each other as they bathed. One time, she was followed by a male client while she was trying to find a spot to bathe, and she had to ask female clients to keep watch. And I was harassed by some of the men in leadership, you know, so that's, I'm getting emotional. It's not easy to be chased around a table with a man trying to kiss you, proclaiming his love for you. When then your trip leader just stands there and laughs and he doesn't do anything. She always had an escape plan and she would carry a rock with her. At one point, she felt so uncomfortable with a male trip leader that she went 10 days without bathing. One day, a trip leader started urinating in front of her and her female colleague while they were on the water. And I looked at my friend and she goes, Just go with it. This happens all the time. He won't be the last one to do it. And it was terrible. And I said, that's not right, though. And years later, the same man threatened, physically threatened me. When I found my voice and I spoke out about how he was taking advantage of his leadership, you know, to the point where he would not do anything and I would do all the work. Um, And yet he's getting paid a couple thousand dollars more than I am. And yeah, it's a lot of trauma, but it needs to come out. And the other day someone asked me, well, I get this quite a bit. Do you want your kids to be river guides? I said, no. It was chipping away at my eventual departure. But it was the lack of respect for Native culture and the lack of true, meaningful partnerships with tribes that ultimately did me in. In 2007, the Park Service mandated Native American cultural education for companies working in river guiding or hiking in the canyon. But for Nikki's company, you could simply submit a document saying you went to a speech in order to pass the mandate. That wasn't working, and when the heads of the river guiding companies came together, they decided they needed a formal educational curriculum. Nikki and a colleague in the Hopi tribe were appointed as associate directors to create a curriculum for other river guides to learn about Native culture. She worked tirelessly to create the curriculum and planned a three-day seminar that would stand as education for the guides. There were lecturers, performances, even traditional food. They took a river trip with elders inside the Grand Canyon, made offerings to the water along the natural springs, and gathered plants. Nikki's project was funded for a couple years, and she needed to present the program to the Grand Canyon River Outfitters Association to receive more funding to continue the program. And we presented on our plan for the next maybe like four years, two years. And we said, if you contribute so many cents per user days, and we said, well, this is what we'll do with the money. We came up with a budget. And I remember several people falling asleep. And um, it was very intimidating 
to be in that room, it was dead quiet in this room that's otherwise beautiful. And I remember, I don't think they're interested, but, you know, I was holding out hope. Nikki says they rejected the program and told her that they had done enough. And we were stunned and it hurt because they said, we don't need you anymore. We got what we wanted and that's sufficient. And um, that was it. And I, ha- I had to tear myself away from that educational program. They asked her to come back later on, but she had already accepted a new job. She says the program is technically still alive, but is dormant unless they need it. I don't think that it's impossible to just keep including Native American indigenous voices in the sense that they're not just a check off your list, like consulting with tribes is one thing, but actually really including them in a meaningful way, ensuring that there's a diverse group of leadership that don't just belong to the typical white man or white woman, but actually there's a lot of Native American indigenous park rangers out there that can be elevated to that level if we choose to cultivate that type of environment. I asked Nikki, Sarana, and Ophelia what their visions are for the future of the Grand Canyon after working so closely with the land and being discouraged time and time again by disrespect or developments or removal. From my point of view as a former recovering commercial river guide is that they need to have a literally set aside user days for Native Americans to go downriver and to maybe offer that opportunity for a Native American group to start a company, to have a commercial river guiding company from Lee's Ferry on down. The companies make millions of dollars. Maybe they can put that into a mentoring program, a river guide program, specifically for people of color. Sarana similarly saw the root issue being the lack of Indigenous people in leadership positions. My vision that I see is that we as Indigenous people will be in those administrative positions, in in many positions of Grand Canyon National Park. We will have more education. There will be more, more people who are fluently speaking there to help and educate those who are visiting the place. We will have more place names of the area. We will have more, a greater and a bigger dialogue of who we are, who our ancestors were that were there, and that we are still here and we will continue to be here. And that it will also direct the visitors towards our own communities and visit our community too, so that they better understand who we are And I like the momentum we're in right now. And I I see this expanding not just here, but also setting a tone for other parks out there. The park is wanting and seems to be willing to listen about getting true history out there, about possibly being able to redo the display down in so-called Indian Garden and to have the tribe be able to oversee something like that. They're also working on trying to involve the 11 associated tribes as well and to get some of their history into places and parts of the park. It's, it's a little bit of progress. You can't have everything all at once. 
Um, but sometimes it still seems like we're only designated in certain areas. And I hope that that can be broadened in the future. Once again, I'm young and I've, I've gotten to see the, the better things. I've gotten to see what is progression and I've gotten to see what, what I think is a seemingly decent relationship with the park, but I know that's not how it used to be. We have been put here to be protectors of the Grand Canyon, to be protectors of the area. And we have some brother and sister tribes who believe that of us as well. The Hopi also believe that we are there to protect some of these most sacred places. We have been here in the Grand Canyon since time immemorial and we've never left. We know where the springs are. We know how to garden. We know how to talk to the land. We, we've been trying to protect it. We could have never imagined things like uranium mining being real. And a small tribe like ours, we were told that don't even bother fighting against the uranium mining industry. You're so small, you're going to lose. And it, those words fall on deaf ears when the people have strong hearts and know, and know the land. And we've been fighting against uranium mining for almost the last 40 years. And we will continue to fight the good fight to protect the land, to protect the water, to protect ourselves. But look at all the visitors who come now. Look at all the people who live here now and call it their home. This is now their home. This is now their land to help and protect. And we've been fighting for its protection essentially for you to all be able to live here now and to come here and see it now and to visit it and enjoy it, uh, love it. It loves you right back. It's so big and beautiful and that is what we were put here to do, and we're still here. If you want to visit the Grand Canyon, it's important to choose a safe time to visit, especially with variants of COVID on the rise. Indigenous and non-Indigenous lives are at stake. To learn more about the hydroelectric dams proposed in the Grand Canyon and other threats to the surrounding land and how you can help, visit grandcanyontrust.org. And if you want to go on a river trip in the canyon, we suggest hiring the Wallapai River Runners, who educate guests on Native history as you travel the canyon. Parks would like to thank Nikki Cooley, Serana Riggs, and Ophelia Wadahomaji Corliss, whose stories made this episode possible. We also want to give gratitude and recognition to the Hopi, Zuni, Havasupai, Wallapai, Yavapai Apache, San Juan Southern Paiute, Kaibab Paiute, Las Vegas Paiute, Shivwitz Paiute, and the Navajo tribes, whose ancestral lands comprise today's Grand Canyon National Park. The storytellers featured in this episode helped us decide to make donations to the Grand Canyon Trust, the Havasupai tribe, and Indigenous Vision. If you want to support independent, forward-thinking media and indigenous organizations like these, you can go to parkspodcast.com slash donate. 
If you want to support Ophelia's social justice and historical documentation work, her Venmo and PayPal are on our donations page. Parks is reported and co-created by me, Mary Mathis, and produced and co-created by Cody Nelson. Our story editor and consultant is Taylor Hensel. Additional editing by Mara Fox. Music by Mitch McAndrew. Special thanks to Ernie Atencio and Alex Simpson. Kenyon Ellsworth designed our website, which is parkspodcast.com. You can email us at hello at parkspodcast.com and please share this podcast if you liked it. You can also give us a review and subscribe wherever you're listening to this show. Thank you for listening.